You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Thank you, Diana. That was awesome. Well, good morning again. Everybody awake? Feels a little thin in here, a little, a little off, I know. I feel a little off, too. That's okay. Well, I'm excited to preach this morning. Um, I've been looking forward to it for a couple weeks now when I knew uh, Pastor was going to be over there at uh, Brother Ruckman's Falls International. Uh, so I've been preparing for a while, and I'm excited to preach to you. Hopefully, uh, it will be something that will be a help to you. That's always my goal anytime I get the opportunity uh, to not come up here and give you my great ideas or something that I thought of, but something that the Lord spoke to me about uh, that I think hopefully will be a help to you. So... Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Matthew. Uh, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 27. Uh, fitting song, Diana. I had no idea, obviously, that she was singing a song, but it works real well. The Lord knows what he's doing. Uh, song, or, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 27. Uh, if you would go down to verse number 35, and if you'd stand with me, as you find verse number 35 of Matthew chapter 27. Just going to read a few verses here, but then keep your, keep your thumb there in Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew 27 and 28 quite a bit this morning. So keep your Bibles open, uh, ready to follow along as we go through. But right now we're going to read verses 35 through 37 of Matthew chapter 27. The Bible says, And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there. And set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for Sunday. Thank you for your church, your people that are here. Lord, I pray that you will bless the time this morning. I pray that everything that's done here and the singing that we've had so far, the fellowship together, the preaching, and then afterwards, Lord, will be all done for your glory and for your worship, Lord. Help us to... Have that in mind as we go throughout our morning. Lord, pray that you'll help me as I preach. Give me the words that you would have me say. Holy Spirit, please uh, guide my words, guide my thoughts. Help me to be a blessing to those that are here, to your people. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So if you didn't notice from the weather, uh, winter's here. Uh, it's South Dakota, and it's you know sometimes it comes earlier than this, sometimes it comes later, sometimes it does both. Uh, and winter is definitely here. It's, we got some rain and snow and it makes for fun driving adventures, we'll say that. Uh, and, you know, it's sweeping or not sweeping, but snow plowing the driveway or shoveling, whatever you do. Winter's here. It's cold. And if, it, it probably, for a minute, it kind of passed me, but today's December 1st. Like, we're in the last month of the year. I didn't even really quite realize it with all, you know, Thanksgiving being the last week of November this year, just kind of all blended together and woke up. It's like, oh, it's, it's a new month. It's the first month. Or the first day of the last month of the year. We're, we're coming up on 2020. Wow. Remember when that was the future? Like when you're, you're younger, like, man, in the 2020, flying cars and, you know, all this stuff. And, yeah, we're, we're not quite there yet. But 2020 is coming upon us. 2019 is almost over. Um, and I'm, I love this time of year. I love Thanksgiving. I love Christmas. I love Christmas. I'm still, if you know me a little bit, you know I'm, I'm not very mature of a person. And in the best way possible, okay, I'm, I'm very mature when it's called for, but I'm a very big kid. 
I like, I like playing, I like toys, I like, you know, I just like being a kid. I feel like I'm still a kid. So Christmas time is my favorite time of year. Always was when I was a kid, I just couldn't wait for Christmas. And then when you started having kids, it was even more fun somehow to get ready for Christmas for them and to start all these new things that I did as a kid that we're going to do for them as a kid and just Christmas time, oh, it's fun. So since Thanksgiving is over, you can now play Christmas music. Right? You're allowed to. No one's going to give you the, the side eye because you're playing Christmas music before Thanksgiving's over. You can put up all your decorations. Right, You can do everything that you do and get ready for Christmas. Got a whole month of it. Um, you can even eat those candy canes. Right, You can get those out. You have an excuse now to, to eat peppermint candy as much as you want because it's, it's Christmas time. That's the time that's coming. And I love Christmas. I really do. Um, but with this week being Thanksgiving and just happening a few days ago, I really do also love Thanksgiving. Um, and as I was preparing for this message, Thanksgiving kind of was on my heart. And I didn't want to come up and necessarily preach a Thanksgiving message, but the Lord led me in a way that for something that we should all be thankful for and grateful for, and you probably have an inclination of where we're going based on what we read this morning. But the most important thing for us to be grateful for as Christians <clears throat> is Jesus' death on the cross. And as Diana sang, it didn't end there. He also rose and gives us hope for the future, for our eternal life. And so today we're going to talk about that one thing that Jesus did, not the only thing, but one of the things that Jesus did that as Christians, man, we should never lose the gratefulness and the understanding of what he did. A lot of times you'll hear crucifixion and resurrection messages preached around Easter, and that's fine, but I don't think there's a time of year that this isn't appropriate. So uh, we're going to go through Jesus' crucifixion this morning. We're going to talk about his road to Calvary. Uh, and then we're going to talk about what that means for us. And a lot of, for most of you, probably, this is nothing new. You've read this numerous times in, in the Gospels. You've heard numerous messages on it. I don't proclaim to bring anything new or something you haven't thought of or seen up to this point. But for me, as I studied, it was a very good reminder and kind of a gut check or a reset button for me and my Christian life as, you know, we kind of get into the nostalgia when we re- approach the end of a year and then getting forward, looking to new beginnings of next year. And so for me, it was kind of a reset button in, in understanding what Christ did for me, specifically, what he went through, what he suffered through, and being grateful for those things that he did. So take your Bible, go back one chapter to Matthew chapter 26, probably just a page over, maybe two, because Matthew 26 is a pretty long chapter. Uh, Matthew chapter 26, we're going to start at verse number 47, and we're just going to kind of quickly semi-quickly, walk through uh, his, his approach and his walk to Calvary, the road that he took to being accused and betrayed to being put to death. And hopefully, for me, as I read through it and made my notes and studied it, I just wanted to really focus on every aspect of, of, of what Christ went through leading up to that time. So Matthew 26 down to verse number 47. So we're, here we have Jesus being betrayed. He knew it was coming. And verse 47 says, And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, one of his closest friends, close group, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. So step one on his road to Calvary is we have Jesus' betrayal. 
one of his closest chosen 12, his inner circle of friends. We all have that inner circle of friends, people that are closest to us. We have lots of acquaintances, we have family, but you have that kind of tight-knit, and your family might be that tight-knit group of friends. Imagine some of your best friends and closest to you in, in your life turning their backs on you and betraying you. Now, just because Jesus knew it was happening and he knew this was the way it was going to be doesn't mean it didn't hurt him. doesn't mean that it didn't affect him. doesn't mean that he didn't feel betrayed. Think about when you're in school and you're betrayed by your best friend in school when she told that boy you liked him and you felt betrayed that your emotions, your feelings were betrayed and how, as you get older, how petty that seems. But those hurt was real. Imagine being an adult working like this, being Jesus, who he was, God, and being betrayed. Can you imagine the pain? Just right there already, we're starting with, physically nothing has happened to him yet. They've grabbed him, but he's already got that betrayal on his heart. Continue down to verse number 59 of Matthew 26. So now we have this crazy time of the, the Jewish people and the high priests are just trying to catch him in anything they can. They're, they're, they're fed up. They can't put up with this man that claims to be God's son. Verse number 59, it says, Now the chief priests and the elders and all the council sought false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death. They had a plan, and they were going to do anything they could to make it happen, no matter if it was true or not. Verse 60, But found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none, and the last came two false witnesses. Over in Mark, it even tells us that the false witnesses they brought contradicted each other. They, one would say something accusing Jesus, and they'd be like, yeah, that's right. And they'd bring someone else in, and he would say something completely different. So even in the false accusations, they could not find, get a firm grasp on any real thing to get Jesus on. But that didn't matter, as we'll see. Continuing in verse number 61, and said, this fellow said, this is the false accusation, the final one they kind of hold on to. says, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses say against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. So Jesus had, didn't give them anything to say. Didn't have any words, didn't have any rebuttal, didn't have any yeah buts, nothing. Jesus just sat there, let them talk. And finally the chief priest is so frustrated because they have nothing. He's finally like, just, just tell me, I, I implore you, I adjure you, you must tell me by the God that I worship, who is Jesus' father, are you the son of God? Just flat out, just tell me, are you God? Are you the son of God? In verse 64, Jesus saith unto him, thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And here is the high priest's response. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now we have heard this blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. So they couldn't legally, in any kind of court, pin anything on Jesus. We know he was perfect. He lived a sinless life. No one would have ever found anything on him. They would find stuff on me. They would find stuff on you. Anybody looking hard enough like these people were would find stuff on us because we're sinners. God, Jesus, was not a sinner. He lived a perfect life, and they, they found whatever they could. Now, have you ever been falsely accused of something? Has anyone ever t said that you did something and got you in trouble, and you, you were nowhere near the situation, 
had nothing to do with it, said none of those words. And, and think of the, the hurt and the, the betrayal and the wanting to defend yourself. Our immediate response is to defend ourselves. This is what Jesus is going through here. Now, he is God, he is perfect, but he was man also, and he felt the same things we feel. So he's going through this emotional roller coaster, this fake trial, this joke of a trial, trying to get him in trouble, trying to pin him on something, and, and seeing all these people come up and say lies about him, tell straight-up lies about who he was and what he did. And then when the high priest finally says, just tell me, are you the son of God? Obviously he was. They didn't believe him, but when he claimed to be who he was, that's all they needed. And they called it blasphemy because they did not believe that he was the Son of God. And we, having the Bible and the, the benefit of being in the future, know we would sit there and be like, oh, I would never do that. But in that time, who knows? Being caught up like they were caught up in the accusations that they had. But Jesus sat there and took it because he knew that was the plan the whole time. So he has this false accusations, and they take him up. Continuing on, let's see here. Uh, <clears throat> we're going to skip down. See, I'm sorry, I lost my place. Oh, here we go. Verse number uh, 67. We'll continue right after where we stopped. 67. So they said he's guilty of death. And verse 67, they said, Then they spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, Christ, who is he that smote thee? So he's sitting in this court, being falsely accused, lied about. He claims to be who he is. They say he's deserving of death. And now, the people that are there, and these are the the leaders of the Jewish people, these are the leaders, the Sanhedrin, the high priest, the people that are in charge, spit on him. You ever been spit on? Not by your child, like accidentally, you know, they spit on you and they're sneezing or, you know, that not, but spit on you because they hate you. Does anyone ever spit in your face because they despise who you are and what you stand for? Not a lot of us have gone through something like that. But can you imagine if someone hated you so much to show that hatred and that disdain for you as a person spitting in someone's face will do that. It's not the spit. It's not the, the, the liquid. It's the, the act. It's the what is behind it. That's the hurtful thing. And they spit in his face. And then they hit him. They buffeted him. They hit him with their fists and they slapped him with the palm of their hands. Can you imagine? Knowing what we know, knowing that Christ was God, is God, can you imagine slapping him in the face? You ever been slapped? Again, not, not accidentally by your kids, like that has happened to me sometimes. But have you ever been slapped because someone is so mad at you? Or just hates what you said? So upset with what you said? So upset with who you are, what you stand for, that they just haul off and slap you in the face? You're not in a fight, you're not in a boxing match, you're not ready to go, you're just being slapped full, just right in the face. Spit on, slapped, and then mocked and said, tell me who I am if you know if you're God. And this is just the beginning. This is what Jesus is going through, step one. He's being lied about, betrayed, slapped, spit on. All because he is Christ. All because of what he wants to do for me. And what his plan is for me so that I can call on him someday. So they had him where they wanted him. They had Jesus where they wanted him, and they were taking out their frustrations of the last three years of what he has done and upsetting their kind of order of what they had religiously. And he was, he was messing all that up. So they're finally getting their revenge on him for all the things that he had done. 
But the problem here is Israel's under Roman leadership, right? They can't haul off and put Jesus to death on their own because they're not even in control of their own country. Rome is in control of their country. So now they've got to basically send it up the chain. They got to, if they want to put Jesus to death, they can't just haul him out and do it. Otherwise, they're going to be in trouble with the government. So they've got to take him to somebody else. So they take him off to Pilate, as we know. So uh, chapter 27, verse number 1. It says, when the morning was come, so we have a whole night go by. Jesus has been beat up, slapped, spit on, lied about, betrayed. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Now pay attention to the words. We kind of gloss over, but the chief priests, so all the religious leaders, all the ones that are doing what the Old Testament says they're supposed to do, they're in charge of, of all the religious activities, and the elders of the people, all the respected people, all the men, all the ones that are kind of in charge, the people of leadership, all the leadership of this entire section of people took counsel against Jesus how to put them to death. So they're coming up with a plan. So how are we going to do this? Okay, we, we, he's blaspheming. We've we got to get rid of him. We've got to put him to death. How are we going to do that? And they scheme and they plan and how they're going to do it. Verse number two, and when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. So this is our plan they come up with. All right, we've got to give him to Pilate. He's the governor of this area. He'll give us, we're going to get him to, to, to put forth this effort. We're going to put him to death. That's, that's the plan. That's what they came up with. Now drop down to verse number 11, standing before Pilate. Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. So now imagine being the Roman ruler, being Pilate. You're in charge of this area. Caesar is looking to you to control the Jews. They're kind of, they can cause problems. You've got to kind of keep them under your thumb. Make sure they don't just, don't cause a problem. Do what they've got to do. Let them do what they do. But don't let them cause a problem. That's your edict as Pilate. Don't let any uprising happen. Just keep control. Bring the money in that you're supposed to bring in through taxes and just kind of keep it under control. So that's Pilate's job. So he's, they bring in this man, Jesus, and they're accusing him and they're saying, this guy needs to be put to death. He's causing so much problems. He's causing grief. He's, he's causing unrest in our community. We need him dead. This is what he's claimed to be. He claims to be king. We only have one king, that's Caesar. Caesar is our king. So the chief priest is saying. Saying he is our king, but this man claims to be king. He must think he's better than, than the Caesar. Well, that's kind of a big deal. So, verse number 11. Jesus stood before the governor. He said, Are thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, Thou sayest, verse 12. And when he, when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. So he's being accused again, and Jesus says nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Hearest, not, hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? He says, Don't you? You have nothing to say? They're saying all these terrible things about you. Verse 14, and he answered him to never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. So he says, okay, they're accusing you of a lot of stuff, and you're saying nothing. And so to Pilate, in Pilate's mind, he's like, okay, something's, something's not right here. This is, this is kind of in, insane. This is crazy. This, something isn't right. But he, and as we continue with the story, we'll see, he basically ends up just washing his hands of it. Verse number 22, so they go through, talk about Barabbas. They want Barabbas and kill Jesus. Verse 22, Pilate saith unto him, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? So if you want Barabbas back, we have to release somebody. You want him, but you want me to get rid of Jesus. What do you want me to do? And they say unto him, Let him be crucified. So this isn't the way Jews do capital punishment, right? This is not God's law on how capital punishment is supposed to be done, crucifixion. This is the Roman government and the Romans that have set this up in their 
reign as they've conquered the known world. Their capital punishment, one of the worst ever, is, is crucifixion. And so immediately the high priests and the elders of the Jews say, do the worst thing you do to him. Do it. Because we, we don't do that. As Jews, we don't do that. That's not the way we do it. But we want you to do your worst punishment, the most excruciating way to put someone to death. Do that to him. That's how much we hate him. That much, that's how much we loathe him. That's how much we just, we don't just want him to be off the scene. We want him to pay for what he's done. And we want him to pay every minute that he'll, he's alive until that happens. So they yell out, crucify him. Verse 23, and the governor said, why? What evil hath he done? They said, the crucifixion is for the worst people. What has he done? But they cried out the more, saying, let him be crucified. So they didn't give an answer. He says, why? What, what did he do that deserves that execution? And they didn't give him reasons. They just started yelling louder. Sound like the internet in 2019? Sound like social media in 2019? You want to get your point across? Yell louder. Be the loudest one. And in this case, it's like, okay, again, I don't want civil unrest. I don't want anything crazy to go on here, so fine. If this will calm you down, take him. We'll do, we'll do what you ask us to do. He's, he's whatever, I'll deal, whatever, we'll deal with it. I don't want to deal with Caesar. And that's Pilate's approach to this. Now imagine, again, from Jesus' perspective, from your Savior's perspective, the reason he's doing all of this is for you. Today, December 1st, 2019, he went through all of this, and we're not even to the bad stuff. For you, lied about, betrayed, accused, sentenced to death. Not just lethal injection, not something painless, but the worst death at the time that could be imagined. That's what they want to do to him. So now let's jump down to verse number 27 of Matthew 27. The next step he has, now the Romans, they like to soften people up before they execute them. The Romans really at this time, especially the soldiers here, they kind of enjoyed inflicting pain. It was very, they were very sadistic, very evil people that did this. But they enjoyed the pain that they caused others. And so now they're, this is where it starts to get bad for Jesus physically. These are Roman soldiers, right? They're part of an army. This is their life. They live to be a soldier. They live to follow orders. And they're the best there are at the world at this time. The best soldiers around. They're the special forces they're the ones that have conquered the world. They're the best at what they do. And now they're going to prepare him, quote-unquote, for execution. Verse number 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. You know how many people that is? The whole band. It's not just, you know, we have this vision, or this picture in our head of the crucifixion, right, and how it goes. We've read the story, we've heard messages, and you kind of have this visual representation in your mind and for me, it was always like a handful of men, right? They were in this common hall. But the, the Bible says a whole band. And I did some research. There's no specific number of what a whole band is. But it's probably between three to 600 people, soldiers. That's what a band would have been considered at this time in history. A band of Roman soldiers would probably be three to 600, somewhere in there. So that's a pretty big range. But even just say 300. They gathered him into a common hall, right, a big room where this stuff is done, and 300 men are there, ready to watch this spectacle, to participate maybe. And we know a lot of them do participate. But 300 Roman soldiers are there, ready to prepare him for his execution. Verse number 28. 
And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. So they heard the accusation that he's king of the Jews. Oh, you're a king? All right, here you go, king. Take a purple royal robe and put it on his shoulders. You're king, look at you, after we took everything you have. He doesn't have any, he's he's stripped completely naked. Here's this robe, we're going to put this on you, our king, the king of the Jews. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, verse number 29, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying, Hail, king of the Jews. Can you imagine? He is God. We believe that, yes? Jesus is God? He is God, and he's going through this for you. He's, he's, he's barely been touched yet. He's been hit, he's been slapped, but the bad stuff hasn't happened. He's been mocked, lied about, betrayed, and now, now they're mocking him in about the worst fashion you can. They gave him a robe, they get a crown of thorns with thorns that are a few inches long, they put it on his head where it pierces his skin, and they give him a, a reed or a staff to hold, and then they... They have the audacity to actually get down on a knee and do what they're going to do someday and what we all will do someday and what Jesus deserves then and always to be worshipped. And they mock worship God. And they mock, oh, hail King of the Jews. And they mock him sarcastically and laughingly and despairingly. These men have no hatred for Jesus like the Jewish, like the, the high priests do. They're just, they're just, This is just what they do. They're just mean, evil men. And so they're going to take advantage of the situation. So they mock him. They put the crown of thorns on his head, give him a reed to hold, and they pretend to to worship him. Hail, king of the Jews. Verse number 30. And here we go. And they spit upon him. So more spitting on him. Disgust. And took the reed and then smote him on the head. So they took the reed he was holding with those huge thorns on his head, and they hit him on the head with it. Have you ever been hit in the head with something like a stick? Top of your head, when you get hit with something, that hurts. You ever bumped your head on a table? Gemma was underneath the table, was it yesterday or the day before? And she, you know, three-year-old, situational awareness, not very great. She stood straight up, and bam, right on the bottom of the table. Immediate crying, just immediate crying, tears flowing. That hurts, getting hit on the head, that hurts. Imagine having spikes in your head and having someone else hit you as probably as hard as they can. Or hard, hard enough that's more than hitting your head on the table. Hitting him with that, with those thorns on his head. This is what Jesus is going through. Again, reminder for you, for me, today, in this pew, in this building, in this right now, this is why he did it. Then they took out the whip and they scourged him. Tied pieces of glass, bone, fragments of metal, whatever they had at the end of this whip that was splayed out in in different strands of leather, and they just hit him on the back. Took that robe off, just hit him. Tied him. Usually they tie you to a post, right? So your arms are up like this, and you can't move, and they just hit him over and over and over again. And the Bible says they hit him so many times, by the time they're done with the scourging, you could barely recognize him as, as as who he was, let alone as a man almost in general. They hit him in the face so many times that his face swole. His cheek swells up. His eyes swell up. His mouth is cut. His teeth. Then they hit him with the cat of nine tails and it strips the skin off his back. You see the muscle. You see the blood just starts pouring down. And now, now they're going to work on him. Most people, a lot of people, historically don't even make it to the crucifixion if they're treated this way. They die from the scourging. 
And that's why even the Jews have the scourging they're supposed to do 40 times is the max they could do it. So they'd always stop at 39 just in case they lost count. Romans had no rule. Romans had no rule that 39 was the maximum amount of scourgings they could do. They kept going. A lot of times this would happen to other people until it literally ripped their insides out. It's devastating. It's atrocious. It's awful. And they did this to God. This is what they did to him. And then they put his own clothes back on him after they were done with that. Put his clothes back on him and said, all right, take the cross beam, put it on your shoulder. Now we're going, we're going to the death part now. We're going to the execution. This is just preparation. So they made him carry the cross beam of his cross to Calvary or Golgotha. And they bring him down there. And now we're getting to the part where they're going to crucify him. So we're going to jump down to verse number 35. And when that's, this is where we started this morning. So I, I'll give you a little backstory. I bought some visual, visual representation, because you know me. This is, I do this, whatever. I like visual representation. It helps me remember things. It makes an impact. When I was in high school, I was living for me. Okay, just a little backstory. I, was, I, was, I wanted to be in the medical profession because you made a lot of money. Not because I wanted to help people. Not because I had a heart to help. Because I wanted to make the money doctors make. So because I didn't want to help people, I decided to go to the pharmacy school at SDSU. So I went to SDSU for two years and did pre-med and did the pharmacy stuff because then I could get a lot of money like doctors but not actually be in the doctor's room, right? Me. I, was, I cared about what I wanted, me, 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 right? 80 grand a year right out of college, let's go. That's what I wanted, right? And there was a man that came to our church that I was going to at the time and he pre- preached a message similar to this, used the example I'm going to use and it woke me up. And it changed my life. It changed my direction. I wasn't going down a wicked path, right? I wasn't going to open a bar down the road to make money. I was going to do something, you know, noble, something that's respected. I wasn't going to be battles in church, right? But I was living for me. So he did this sermon, and it it brought something to my mind, and it it got my attention. So, Brother Chambers, thanks for the railroad tie. Appreciate that. So we have a railroad tie, and it's, obviously, it's not the cross, but it's a representation of part of the cross, right? This is heavy. It's very small, but it's heavy. Jesus had to carry, and they say the cross beam was about 100 pounds. Now, after you've been beaten, smacked in the face, imagine getting in a fight and then, then getting tore up by, by something sharp, a wild animal, whatever, and now you have to carry something 100 pounds down a cobblestone road to where you're going to die. Obviously, he had a hard time, and he fell. His body, that is all human, failed him, Right? and the weakness and things that happened. Um, and so they had someone carry it for him. But then they brought him to that place. They laid the cross beam down on the ground, most likely. Laid him down, stretched his arms out. Not tight, but so his elbows were bent a little bit. And then they began to crucify him. So they took the, the nails they say they used were probably about six to seven inches long. And they were made of iron. Not as nice as this galvanized steel here. But they took these nails, they were similar to this, best representation I could find. And they put his arms down. And we see pictures that they hammered his hand through the hands. Not likely, because if they did that, it probably would have ripped right through his fingers with the weight that he had. Most likely it was put between your radius and your ulna, right in your wrist here, missing the veins and the arteries. They were really good, again. The Romans were really good at this. They do hundreds of them. So they put it right between those two bones so it had something to hang on. And they just took, they didn't have a nice hammer like this, but they just took it. That's how you get killed, you do something like that. They were good at it, again, not me. This is why I brought it home to practice earlier. Started in. 
Jess got scared for a second. She saw her life flash between her eyes. But they took Jesus. They put his arms down. They just hit it. You have to get through the bone or the, the skin. You have to get through the wood. And it has to stay. And they did that in this arm. Then they did that in this arm. And they pounded it in there. They took that nail. They drove it deep into his arms. Then they lifted it up, put it up on the tall one that stayed there all the time. And then they put his feet together, and they did the same thing. They pounded that nail through his feet into that cross for you, for me. And they crucified him for our sin. And we read this story, and we hear it, and we're like, man, that's awesome. I'm so grateful. Thank you, Jesus. And then we go do our life. And we forget. We don't know because we weren't there. And words don't do it justice. We don't have a visual representation of the atrocity that happened that day. But they did that to him. So we read the two verses we read. They put the sign above his head that said he was king of the Jews. The Jewish people wanted that sign taken down because he only said he thought he was, but we don't agree. And Pilate's like, leave it. It stays. Now jump down to verse number 50 of chapter 27. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. At this point in this process, most men would be dead. They would have already died. They would have not been able to survive up to this point. Jesus was perfect. He lived a sinless life. He didn't have the sin that we have even on our bodies. And he was able to live longer than probably any other human being ever would have made it. To a point because he decides when he was going to die. John 10.18 said, He said, No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. And Jesus yielded up the ghost. He chose at that moment to die. He took all the sin that you've ever committed, all the sin that you will commit, the sin you'll commit this afternoon, the sin you'll commit next year in 2020, the sins of the worst person that has ever lived. He took all those sins on himself. So it wasn't even the nails and the physical things. It was the separation from God. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because God had to turn his back to him because he became sin. He took all the sin of every person that's ever lived and ever will live on him and paid the penalty. Took that upon himself. And then verse number 54. We see a centurion in charge of a hundred soldiers pricing dozens, if not scores or hundreds of crucifixions saying now when the centurion, verse 54, and they that were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake. So the earth is trembling. And those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. They had seen hundreds of crucifixions. Hundreds of men die by the same means. But they knew this one was different. 
even they, part of this band of soldiers, inflicting this pain, executing this man, knew something was different here. Something was different about this man. So we have the crucifixion. That's the road to his crucifixion. Then, as Diana's saying, we have the best part of it, though. Chapter 28, verse number 1. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to, uh, to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to, to, the, to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. So we have another earthquake. And the angel of the Lord coming from heaven and pushed the door or the stone aside. His countenance or his face was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. The people that were there watching his grave were so terrified they passed out. They were just gone. Verse 5, And the angel answered and said unto the woman, Mary, Fear not ye, for I know that, that, that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come see the place where the Lord lay. So Jesus had said this his whole life. They're going to kill me. They're going to crucify me. They're going to kill me, but I will come back. And that's the temple that he was talking about. I will rise again three days later. And he did what he said he was going to do. No other man, no other person that claimed to be God, no other man that claimed to be a prophet or anything special has ever risen from his grave besides your Jesus. He's the only one in the history of everything ever that ever came back from the dead that ever came back from what was done to him because he is God. Jesus is God. People will tell you that he's not. People say he's a great man, he's a prophet. No, Jesus was and is God. And he rose again for you. That's the important part. He could take all the payments, die, but if he doesn't do anything about it, if he doesn't raise again, he's no better than anyone else. He's no better than Muhammad or Buddha or anybody. But because he rose again to pay for our sins, that makes him able to conquer death and conquer hell and be the, the sacrifice that you require for your sin. And that's what he did. So after all that, 2019 is almost over. What are you doing with that sacrifice? How do you treat it? How does your life reflect what he did. Are you the 20-year-old like I was, living for yourself, only wanting money and the best thing I could have in my life to be comfortable and, and good? Are you dabbling in sin? Are you living a life that is contrary to what he did, that dishonors his sacrifice? If you're not saved, you need salvation, first of all. If you're not saved, you've never accepted the gift that he did right here on the, on the cross, at Calvary, the, the salvation that he offers by his payment for your sin, you're on your way to hell. You cannot pay that payment. You can't pay for your sin, and nothing that is sinful can enter heaven. The only way that you can enter heaven is not by being a good person, not by being religious, not by just hoping, but by accepting what Christ did for you on that cross, the payment he made, and the resurrection of his body. That's the only thing that can pay and get you into heaven is him, what he did. So first of all, if you don't know you're saved, fix that. It, uh, he did it for you. He did it for you. If you were the only one that ever would call in his name for salvation, he would have gone through all that. 
If you don't know you're on your way to heaven today, you can know without a doubt that you can be there with him someday. But to you that are Christians, how's your walk with him? When's the last time you talked to this man? When's the last time you spent time with him? When's the last time he knew you, he was important in your life? How high on the priority list is Jesus? I would say he deserves to be number one. Not just he does because he's God, but I mean, I just hit the nail into a piece of wood and I almost cried. Come on. He went through it. How is your walk with Jesus? Who is he to you? How are you living your life? Are we all concerned about Christmas and make sure we have the right amount of money and need more money so we can buy the presents or hopefully we get the presents that we're hoping for and that's all that's the most important thing is that I get the stuff that I want. Is that what's most important in our life? Are we wrapped up in our own world, in our own self? We're busy. Every day is busy. It's real easy to lose sight. No one's going to do this every day when you wake up to remind you of what he went through. Teenagers, does, does the music you listen to honor the payment of his blood that fell down at Calvary? Does the music honor him? Do the things you watch on TV honor him? Adults will say the same thing to you. It's not just teenagers. Does the music you listen to honor that? Do the things you watch, do the things you talk about, do the things that go on in our thought life that only we know, do those things honor Jesus' sacrifice? Are they appropriate for what he did for us as a Christian? The sacrifice that he made for you to be called a Christian? To say you're a believer? To know your home is heaven? Or are we slaves to our own flesh? Our own desire to live every day for me, myself, and I? Because I'll speak transparently. It happens to me a lot. I live for me. And it's not wicked. I live to take care of my family, to work, to have the things that are comfortable. Nothing that is sinful. But how many times is it just about me and mine? And I excuse, I dismiss, I push on the back burner, I let fall on the priority list what he did. Don't be slave to your own flesh. Don't allow yourself to get so wrapped up in life that you forget who you are. You forget who you used to be and you forget what was done so you can go to heaven someday. That's what matters. When we're all dead and gone, when we're, we're passed off this life or if the Lord comes back, all the stuff you did at work that wasn't about talking about him, doesn't matter. doesn't matter how many ice cream cones I sold doesn't matter. It's worthless. What matters is what he did for me and what I do for him on this earth. How I live my life for him. First Corinthians 5, or 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in, be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Do you live like you're new? Do you live like you're different? Are old things passed away or do those old things still hold sway over your life? Are those old things still somehow more powerful? than God's sacrifice.
It's not because they are, it's because we give the power to them. Colossians 1, For by him were all things created. This is Jesus, the one that died for you. This is a description of him. For by him were all things created, that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Do you understand the gravity of the power of that, those two verses? The, the, the oomph that is behind those? By him all things consist. That means the molecules and the atoms in your body don't just go because of him. They consist because of him. So as I close... First thing I thought about, and this kind of changed this weekend, uh, my grandmother passed away last Sunday. She was 96 years old, lived a full life. She was saved, uh, and we went to her funeral on Saturday, so yesterday, in Iowa. And it's a a reformed church, a Dutch reformed church, good old Dutch reformers. And the the pastor that got up and, and did the service, I'll be honest with you, I feel like I could be honest with you guys here, but... He danced around the salvation story a lot. Danced around it. Said some really good things, quoted some scripture, but I came away from that going, if I didn't know that I was on my way to heaven and you told me, he, he kept saying she would want you to know that you can go to heaven someday. She would want you to know like she knew and have the joy and have the faith that she had, but he never told me how. He never said, how can I know that? Like, what do I do about it? That sounds good. It's all real fluffy and sounds nice, but how do I know what, what's tangible there? What can I do about it? So the first thing about, in closing, about today's message is if you don't know, you're saved. If you don't know, and we use that terminology, saved, like it's a normal thing, but if you don't know heaven's your home, if you don't know if you were to die today, that you, when your eyes opened, it would be in glory. It'd be with Jesus. If you think just nothing happens, or I don't know what would happen, something happens. You wake up in two places. You either are going to be in heaven, or you're going to be in hell. And that's not because God hates people or that because God's mean, but that's because we have sin. And everyone's a sinner. Every single human being ever born from the time they come out of the womb are a sinner till the time they die. You're a sinner. And there's a price and a penalty for sin. That penalty is death. And not just death in the grave, but death forever in hell. Because sin cannot enter heaven. Holiness is only allowed in heaven. The problem is, is we can't get there on our own. We can't do anything good enough to become holy enough to be allowed into heaven. And that's why Jesus did what he did. Because he knew that. That no human could do anything for themselves to get to heaven. Only Jesus, the perfect man, could do that. And he lived his perfect life and died, sacrificed. Again, like I mentioned, died on purpose. Gave up himself. Yielded himself for that. Paid those sins. And then rose again the third day. So that you wouldn't have to go through that. The work's been done by someone else. The payment has been made. You just have to accept that gift. Accept that payment. Instead of trying to do it on your own, call upon his name. Trust the work he did. Accept his payment. And Romans ten thirteen, if you call on his name, you shall be saved. For with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. It's easy. It's simple. And God wants every human being alive to accept that. So if you're here today and you don't know, 
that when you wake up after you die, you'd be in heaven, you can know that. And I'd be happy to talk with you, as I'm sure many other people would be, to know that for sure. Don't. It's clear. And it's simple. What Jesus did is not simple. He did a lot. So it could be simple for us. Because he knew one day, for me, he knew one day I'd need to call on his name. He knew one day when I got to the point where I understood my sin that I would need to call on somebody to help me. And that's why he did it. And that's why he went through it. Christian, believer, again, how's your life for him? How's that going? How's your walk with God? Is it what it should be? If there's anybody in here who's like, yeah, yeah, I think so. Our lives are never what they should be. We can never do enough, live for him enough, tell enough people about him to pay and return and equal out the payment he made. We should always be striving to walk more, become more like him. And if you're anything like me, which probably probably not quite like me because who would want to be quite like me, I've got things that I don't live for Christ on. I do things that I out of neglect, out of absent-mindedness, out of selfishness, pride, that aren't worthy to honor what Jesus did for me. So are you making choices in your life, are we making choices in our life that honor his sacrifice? It's not just our get out of jail free card, right? Get out of hell free card, it's not that simple. What he did for us is more than anything, more than anyone has ever done for you. It's what Jesus did. And we accept his salvation, it doesn't end there. It only begins. That's where we have the opportunity to live for him, to do for him, to honor him with our life, to worship him in our every single day, just not on Sunday, to raise our kids to love him, to know him, so that our grandkids someday will love him and know him, to live our life to honor his sacrifice. That's, our, that's, our, that's, that's all you've got to do. It's not a lot. You don't have to be nailed to a cross. You don't have to suffer pain and agony. You just have to live for him. You get to live for him. Get in tune with Jesus. Line up with where he is. Get your life tuned up with him. Live your life for him. Remember what he did. Be thankful for what he did. Remember, don't forget. Don't let this wear off. Not because this is a great illustration. It worked on me. This is not my idea. This got to my heart. And I've forgotten numerous times in my life. Don't let it go. Remember tomorrow. Remember in a week. Remember the first day of 2020. This is why we're here. Not here just to be friendly and kind and be good people. That's part of it. We're here because of what he did. Remember that. Remember what he did for you. I'll pray. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.